Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father God, we so thank you for your word. We thank you for every part of it, every chapter, every verse, every book. We thank you for the Old Testament, the New Testament. We thank you for everything. Uh, We thank you especially for these kinds of passages that we come to today. I pray today as we look at this, such an important, vital uh, set of verses to help us to understand who Jesus is. I pray that you'll just fill me with your spirit, help me to preach it as best I can. I pray, Father, that uh, you'd take control. Uh, that uh, it would be clear, it would be accurate, it would be practical, and there'd be no distraction. I pray, Father, all of us would uh, concentrate and listen on purpose today, for this is your word. This is our Jesus we're talking about. And so I pray that you'll speak to us in, in his name. Amen. In our, in our last study, in the first part of this message, we learned that there is a secondary theme in the book of Philippians. We've said throughout our study so far that the theme, the major theme of the book of Philippians is joy. And uh, that secondary theme that we started talking about last week is unity or singleness of mind, having a single mind. Paul moves now in that discussion to, to, to kind of the ultimate, well not kind of, the ultimate example of that unity, that single mind that he longed for them, the Philippians, and for us to have. And that example is found in, of course, you know who? Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse number five. Now, as I began studying for Philippians and and preparing to teach this series of lessons, I did what I always do, which is, you know, kind of do some background reading and and, and about the book as a whole and things like that. And I encountered some comments in that part of my studies which indicated Philippians is not generally considered to be a very doctrinal book. It's got a lot of encouraging things in it, a lot of practical things in it, but it's not, it's not like the book of Romans where Paul was laying out this impressive doctrinal case. That's not, that's not really what Philippians is about. But here's an exception to that because this passage in Philippians is one of the most important, if not the most important doctrinal passages in the Bible about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Charles Ryrie called Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the high mark of the epistle. He pointed out that they convey in a few verses Paul's conception of the uniqueness of the person and work of Christ. And not only that, These verses give us a really interesting glimpse into what the very earliest church believed about Jesus Christ. I mean, many of you have probably read books or watched the Discovery Channel or seen things where people will try to tell you that a lot of the things that we believe today as Christians are later developments. That some people down through history uh, invented all kinds of other truths, added on to things. Jesus never really taught these kinds of things and the early church never really believed this stuff. But here we have the very earliest church. This letter was written within a generation of Jesus having lived on this earth. 
And yet, even at that time, these things were known and believed about him. Here, think about some of the things uh, he, that this passage says were known about him. He existed before time began. He was equal with God the Father. He was born a man, lived a human life, died on the cross, triumphed over evil, and will reign forever. That was the belief of the very earliest church. It was not an invention that came about later on. The earliest known creed of Christianity is contained herein. Jesus Christ is Lord, the very earliest. And so these few verses tell us as clearly as any place in the Bible what the very earliest Christians believed, what the very earliest Christianity looked like. I like the way Boyce worded it. He said, Christianity is Christ, this Christ, this Christ. And these things were believed about him from the beginning. So even if we just look at this passage from a high level like that, it's looking at it as a whole. It's fascinating, it's, it's, it's interesting, it's very rewarding, but it's as we dig deeper into the passage that it really begins to speak to us and we see its true riches revealed. There's deep meaning in every word, or nearly every word, in this passage. So let's get out our shovels and dig just a little bit into this passage. Let's look first of all at verse number 6. Verse number 6, Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God. I see three vitally important points that jump out at me from this verse. First of all, notice the word form there. Jesus was in the form of God. That may be the most important word in the entire passage. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think it might be. Jesus was in the form of God. This tells us who Jesus really was. It tells us his actual essence. There was a day when Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Having visited Israel several times, I can tell you that I've been there each time. Caesarea Philippi is in the northern part of the country, and it's a, it, it, even to this day, it's an ugly place. It's an it's a unpleasant place, and you can tell that it was a place of idolatry and sensuality and wickedness and sin. And Jesus took his disciples there in the midst of that mess, And the Bible says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, I might ask the same question today. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus was? And even in a crowd here where we preach the Bible all the time, I'm certain that some of you would come up with an answer, something like, well, he was a great teacher. Some would point to his wonderful moral example. He lived such a great example, uh, gave us an example of how to live. Some might suggest that he was the leader of a worldwide movement. Some might go so far as to say he was a tragic figure who was cut down way too early in life, martyred for a cause. But here in this verse, we see Peter could say with such assurance that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is this thing dying? This thing dead? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me grab my mic. Because this passage is too important for you to not hear. You see the word translated form here in our text is the Greek word morphe. It's only used three times that I'm aware of in the New Testament, twice here, in verse 6 and in verse 7. 
It's also used in Mark chapter 16 and verse number 12, when the Lord appeared to the Emmaus Road disciples. And the Bible says he appeared in another form to them. Here's what it means. It means nature or character, visual form, outward appearance, or shape. The word denotes a couple of things. It denotes not only how something looks, not only the outer form or the outer appearance of a thing, but also the essential character of a thing. So when Paul said to the Philippians, Christ was being in the form of God, it means he was God. He was God. That's what it means. As one commentator said, Christ possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. The New International translates it that way. Uh, who It says, who being in very nature God. Ryrie, when he was commenting on this, he, he, he said, Christ is the same nature and essence as God. So the Jesus of the Bible is God. We have to start there. That's the most important thing we can say all, all throughout this whole passage. If we don't get that part, we don't get anything. Jesus Christ, the Bible, uh, the, the Jesus of the Bible is God. If we're not clear on that, we're not looking at the Jesus of the Bible. The Apostle John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of man. The writer to the Hebrews wrote, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ was, and Jesus Christ is, God. He plainly asserted his deity while he was on this earth. I'm sure if I were to ask for a raising of hands, there would be several who would be able to say, yes, I've heard people say that Jesus never declared himself to be God. False. Jesus did declare himself to be God over and over and over again. He played it, he, he did it in such a way that it infuriated the religious leaders of the day because it was not lost on them what he was saying. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. John 5, 18. They knew what he was saying. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. John chapter 10 and verse number 33. If we're ever to understand who Jesus is, we have to start here. We have to get this part right. He was and is from eternity past God, not just a good man, not just some martyr for a cause, not just a wonderful teacher or a marvelous example. He's God. That's the first thing we must understand. Second, notice another little phrase in that first verse there, verse number six. Verse number six. Notice that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That little phrase, he did not consider it robbery, is a very important phrase, even though in our King James Bibles, it's a little bit difficult to understand. Other translations help us here. The, the ESV says, uh, translates verse number 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I believe the NASB and a couple of others also translate it the same way. The New Living Translation translated, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Here's what that means. In other words, here's what that means. He was willing to give it up. He was willing to lay it aside. 
One man said, if ever there was a person who had the right to insist on his rights, it was the Lord Jesus. That his concern for others, those whom the Father had given him, was such that he refused to insist on his rights. He did not consider a robbery to be equal with God. And, and there's one more vitally important thing to notice in verse 6 before we move off of it. And it's that little three-word phrase, equal with God. Equal with God. What an amazing statement that is. I mean, we've already said it. It's been said several different ways, but here it is again. It requires no further explanation as to what it means. To be equal with something is to be the same as that something. Jesus was equal with God means Jesus was exactly the same as God, which means Jesus was God. So get it clear in your mind. Jesus is God's equal. Cults, liberal theologians will try to water that nonsense down. They are nonsense down. But it cannot be watered down. What God is, Jesus is equal with God. Move on to verse number 7 and let's notice actually verse 7 and part of verse 8. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. Here we find that word, that same word form, used again. And it tells us here that Jesus, who had been from eternity past in very essence God, took upon himself the very essence of a servant, of a man. The previous verse taught that he was always God. Now in verse 7 we learn that he became man. One commentator said this, The divine nature is without beginning. The human nature dates from the moment of his birth in Bethlehem. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So who is Jesus? He was, from eternity past, God. And he became, in the incarnation, man. He was as much God as God is, and he was as much man as any of us are. He made himself of no reputation. This is the phrase that gives the entire passage its big theological name. If you're holding a study Bible, you may see the word kenosis somewhere written there in the margin, or it might be the heading of the passage, the kenosis of Jesus Christ. Uh, And it gets that name because that phrase, made himself of no reputation, comes from a Greek word, ekenosa. That's from a root word, kenao. It means to empty, to render void. To empty oneself, to divest oneself of position. When Jesus, God himself, became man, he emptied himself. That's what that phrase is saying. Now, that doesn't mean that, God, that he was any less God once he became man. It means that while he was on this earth, he voluntarily and temporarily chose not to make use of some of the aspects of his deity. I think there's a good illustration, and I don't know if I'm stretching the point here or not, but I think there's a good illustration of this in the hymnal, in the little song, uh, 10,000 Angels. Do you remember that song? They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They spat upon the Savior so pure and free from sin. They said, crucify him, he's to blame. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels. But he died alone for you and me. He could have, but he chose not to. I think that's the meaning of kenosis. He could have, 
but voluntarily chose not to use that prerogative of his deity. Kenosis, the emptying of himself, is what Paul referred to in verse number 7. He was still in every sense God. He could have called upon any tool in God's tool, tool chest. But while on this earth, he chose to leave some of those tools in the box. One man said he willingly left the riches of heaven to take on human poverty. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Another man said he took on unglorified human flesh, which was subject to weakness, pain, temptation, and limitation. He voluntarily chose not to use his prerogatives of deity, such as his omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience to make his way easier. He wearied. He traveled from one point to another. He grew in wisdom and knowledge. Thus, though he didn't surrender his divine attributes, he willingly submitted to not exercising certain attributes of deity so that he could identify with man. As Walbert writes, the act of kenosis may may be properly understood to mean that Christ surrendered no attribute of deity, but that he did voluntarily restrict their independent use in keeping with his purpose of living among men and their limitations. So do you see it? These short verses tell us some amazing things about Jesus. These short verses tell us who he was, who he is. He was God in every way that God is God. And he became man in every way that man is. He was at the same time 100% God and 100% man. The God-man. Any other view of Jesus Christ is incorrect. Any other view of Jesus Christ is wrong. Any other view of Jesus Christ is deficient. And you know, anytime you're, you're evaluating another religion, another church, a cult, anything. This is the question you must ask. What say they of Jesus Christ? And if they believe anything other than this, they are wrong. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John wrote in John chapter 1. For in him, Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 9. Let's look now at verse number 8. Second part of verse number 8. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let me just read what one guy said about this. He said it would have been an act of stupendous humility if the Lord Jesus had done nothing more than to take by himself, to himself, our humanity. But he did much, much more. In that humanity, he died. Dying itself would have been astonishing humility, but there is even more. His death was like no other. It was the death of the cross. Of course, Jesus was not the only man who died on a cross. Many did. But no other death on a cross compared to his. There he became the sin bearer for his people, standing in their place and receiving the wrath of God instead of them. The death of Christ was nothing less than Christ experiencing hell for his people so they would never have to experience that hell themselves. Who can measure the gap between the throne and the cross. Who can plumb the depths of the love behind the cross? The love of God for sinners. Charles Wesley said, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire.'" 
Finally, look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Simply put, because of who Christ was and what Christ was willing to do and did, God has exalted him above all others. He will reign forever. And every knee will bow to him. Angels, demons, Satan, men, women, great and small leaders, slaves, all will bow to Jesus. This truth was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. It was mentioned again in Romans chapter 14 and verse number 11. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And now it's driven home here in Philippians chapter 2. One man said, no intelligent being, whether angels and saints in heaven, people living on the earth, or Satan, demons, and the unsaved in hell, in all of God's universe will escape. All will bow, either willingly, or they will be made to do so. Pastor Phil Ross used to have a saying that he used almost every time he preached, I think. That saying was, so what? He used that saying a lot, and... He'd talk about a passage and then he'd say, so what about that passage? And what he was trying to say was, does this have any relevance to you and me? How does this apply to you and to me? And I would ask that about this one. Does it? Does this have relevance to you and to me? I mean, it's an amazingly, admittedly amazing passage uh, describing Jesus and his work. But does it have any practical application? Well, I think it does, and I want to just give you just, I'm just going to mention a couple sentences and then we'll be done. A few applications, maybe in no particular order. Here's the first one. If Jesus is God, as this passage says, then everything about Jesus is on a whole different plane, isn't it? There is no coexisting with other religions. Jesus is on a whole different There is no equivalence between Jesus and other religious figures in history. You cannot say that Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha are equivalent, all on the same level. There is nothing even remotely to compare. Buddha and Muhammad are in hell. We're never going to see them. We are going to stand before Jesus and bow before Jesus. Jesus stands infinitely above them all. He is the one and only one with whom we have to do. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was the most astonishingly arrogant statement that's ever been uttered in the history of mankind. If it wasn't true, if it was true, it's something we very seriously need to think about. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If Jesus is God, then he's on a whole different plane than anything else that calls itself religion. Than any other person who has ever lived who has tried to attract followers after them. So here's the application, my friend. If you are trusting anything or anybody but Jesus Christ, you are 
unbelievably deceived. You are on the wrong track. There is nothing but Jesus. There is no one but Jesus. You need to cast aside every doubt and run to the foot of of the cross and embrace Jesus. If he's God, everything about him is on a different plane. Another application I would think is this. If Jesus became man, then I'm reminded that he was and is willing to do anything for me. Anything for you. Dwell on those verses for a minute. Think of what Jesus laid aside for you. Think of what Jesus went through for you. Meditate on what it says here about becoming obedient even to to death, the death of the cross for you. It's beyond astonishing to me that anybody could love me that much. Songwriter said, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. All my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms about me and he led me in the way I ought to go. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Third application, if Jesus has indeed been given the name above all other names, and before whom all will bow, then I will bow to him, and so will you. You can bow now, or you can bow later. You can bow in adoration and love, or you can bow when an angel kicks your knees out from under you and forces you to the ground. But you will bow, like it or not. You will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can do it now in amazement and worship, and by doing so, secure for yourself eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and nothing but good. Or you can do it when it's too late, when the offer of salvation has been withdrawn, when you have waited too long and lost the opportunity and are forced to say it in horror, knowing that it's true and that it was always true, that you blew it and missed out on the opportunity. Either way, you're going to say it. You're going to confess it. Jesus Christ is Lord. Why not say it today? Why not say it today? In a few moments, we're going to sing. We're going to close our service. and We're going to sing. We'll give you the opportunity. If you want to, to step out, come to the front. New right here. Trust Jesus Christ as your Savior if you've never done it before. You can do that. Finally, here's the last And even though it's the very last thing, and I've hardly talked about it at all, this is the whole key to the passage. Jesus' attitude, his mind, his single-mindedness, demonstrated in these verses, is the example we're supposed to be following and living amongst one another. That's Paul's whole reason for giving this great statement. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Everything he said in the previous verses about how we're to have the single mind, how we're to have the uh, the mind of... uh, United mind, one heart, one mind, all that stuff that he talked about there. Everything he talked about there, about living without selfish ambition, without conceit, uh, about esteeming others better than ourselves. All those things, this is meant to be an example of that we would follow. 
And so perhaps, I don't know if it's the greatest application, but it is certainly the one that Paul was trying to drive home. We need to have the mind of Christ. This mind, what we see in him here, is the level that we should be attaining to as well. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, let's pray.